0: This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag, which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash greenbiz.
1: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, more excerpts from last week's Verge conference, the latest from Glasgow, into its big play for small business, and corporate deforestation turns over a new leaf. We're seeing the forest this week on 350. It's November 5th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Glasgow, Scotland, is our intrepid copped-out correspondent, Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy.
0: Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. If I'm copped out, what am I going to be like next week? (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
1: So, um, uh, how is it? And I yeah. think we should, we need to disclose to our, our, our listeners that we record these uh, on Wednesday. So uh, this is uh, November 3rd, just a couple of days into the event. And you, you've been here uh, a little over, maybe here and here, not here, but there, a little over 36 hours or so, I'm just guessing. So, uh, but what are your impressions so far of, of Glasgow, of, of just the scene?
0: Yeah. Okay. First, First of all, just on the day that we're recording, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful here. It's (laughs) sunny and and crisp and gorgeous. And it was a lovely, uh, you know, when I got here, I, it was interesting because everyone I've run into locally has been like asking me questions about what's going on, you know, and and they've been, there, there there've been quite a few protests already. There was a bridge closed last night. Um, there were, you know actually threats of train strikes which didn't pan out fortunately um but it's it's quite a logistical um maneuver to get in and out and there have been some issues with uh the delegates not even being able to get in on time so um, it's quite extensive with the the security um Covid, Covid related, and and otherwise, and it's it's quite a logistical challenge. Yeah, just, I re- I read yeah. that
1: Mark Carney couldn't make it to uh, an event where he was supposed to be uh, interviewed on stage, and somebody uh, else had to. Uh... Do a last-minute fill-in as event mm-hmm. producers, we know kind of what wow. that panic is like. Yeah. So yeah, yeah people, it's it's just a logistic. I mean, and that's true to a large extent um, uh, at cops that I've been to. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this sounds this sounds uh, worse than, well, than in the past.
0: And the and the, the buzz here is not only is it inconvenient, but it's it's not right because there are people who can't get in. It should be in and part of the conversation. Um, there there are fewer passes, I believe. Um, because of the COVID situation. I mean, it's very strict here in Scotland. You have to test pretty much every day to get into the main building. And, you know, there's been some complaints about who couldn't get into the conversation. I'm sure there are complaints every COP, but I don't know. It just seems to be more sensitive this time.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to being there by the time this airs on Friday, uh, the 5th. The I will uh, I will be joining you over there for, for uh, the, mostly the, the second week of COP. Yeah. And uh, a little freaked out by the logistics stuff, I have to say. But
0: yeah, I want to say one more thing. I know we're going to talk about one of the big news announcements in a moment here. But the other thing that that, um, many people were observing is that the amount the number of muckety mucks, you know, world leaders like Biden and Jeff Bezos was here and Bill Gates, you know, like the number of folks that have sort of inserted themselves into the conversation really early in the process the joke was that they usually kind of zoom in at the, and not zoom like virtually, but they kind of, you know, show up at the last minute when everything's been settled and they can look good, but they're here. They were here early and there were a lot of, there a couple of really big announcements. um, One of which I'm really fascinated by on methane. Um, I don't know if we want to go down that path right now. I am working on some stories and and some interviews about that, but just, it's a huge deal. And um, then of course, uh, deforestation and, you know, it's just, and that's just, again, in the first 36 hours or so. Yeah.
1: Well, we'll get to methane in a second, but I just have to say that, you know, we're hearing the usual hypocrisy kinds of things. Everyone's yep. flying over there. But the worst one for me was Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Um, were partying on uh on a yacht off the Turkey coast, I guess, uh, Turkish coast yeah. just before before arriving. It's a very, very, very big uh uh yacht that uh, one of them had had chartered, I guess. And mm-hmm. um and, and each of them helicoptered in their helicopter from uh you know, to the oh, boat for goodness. a ship from from and so yeah and then to the climate conference I guess it was uh, it was it was Bill Gates' birthday uh there was a private birthday party held in a turkish cove on our mm-hmm. yacht anyway that's where things are. but let's let's get to the actual enough of that gossipy tabloidish kind of stuff I just had to throw that in there cuz it's just kind of funny God, it is optics. the UK
0: we we have it is tabloid heaven right
1: Yes exactly but let's get to, let's so talk about methane. you mentioned that uh what's the big story
0: so the big story is this massive pledge. Um, I forget the number of countries, but, um, you know, I think a hundred, something like 160, uh, different countries have agreed to address methane as a greenhouse gas very much separately of the, the carbon dioxide, um, conversation. And the, the reason I'm so fascinated, number one, is, is that this is one of those, um, I mean, it's variously called a super, you know, a, it's a climate forcer. It's a super pollutant. It, it, we know that this particular greenhouse gas is extremely um, the the heat that it produces is is it, you know it's it's a lot more intense it, you know the impact is is much more intense in the short term, but it also dissipates much more quickly. So if you the, the the thread here is that if you address this, we can get some of these temperature increases moving in the right direction quickly, while we're working on these long longer term carbon dioxide problems. And so I was just speaking with S- Steve Hamburg, the, the chief scientist from EDF, and he was talking about how this sort of duality, its it's been always sort of bucketed in with the, with the, the entire conversation. And now this gives organizations, companies, and, and so forth, the opportunity to start addressing it um, on their own. Now, I'm still getting my arms around the financing that's going to be put in behind this, what it means for companies. But but a lot of these the, the the solutions we need to address it are here. I mean, there, there's there's very good technologies in terms of keeping the leaks out of different uh, oil and gas operations right now. Um, and it just it's just not that not yeah. everyone's but, using them. Um, go ahead.
1: But my 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 comment here is is really you know if the technology is here now, we can know how to do this. That the goal that was set for this uh, global methane pledge. It was kind of we kind of tepid, uh, we, we, you know yeah. 30 percent reduction yep. by the end of uh, of 20, by the end of the decade compared mm-hmm. to twenty twenty levels, mm-hmm. which were already fairly high. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you know, it, it just strikes me that so much of this stuff is still yeah. so incremental and slow, and that's mm-hmm. and that the the sense of urgency and the increased ambition, as the UN likes to call it, um, it just isn't. Evidence there, maybe by yeah. the end of the by, by the end of COP, we'll see some amazing, you know, accelerated changes. I, I, I'm a little a little skeptical about that. Yeah,
0: I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I and I don't disagree with you. Um, I do like that the conversation is being held separately. There was some. There was actually an interesting presentation I was on earlier this week before I even got here. Um, run by the Methane Action, they're actually in the camp of removal, right there. So they're like out there proposing sort of these geoengineering approaches and pretty, pretty far out stuff that isn't here today. But one of the things that they were saying is, you know, why not treat this like, you know, the Montreal, you know, the Montreal Protocol was so successful and, you know, why aren't we thinking more in terms of that? And why can't we get more treaties like that in place? And so they were suggesting that maybe there should be a separate um, dialogue around it. So yeah. I don't know.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Lots more to come, and we're going to talk about a couple more things in just a minute. But oh, and we'll, next next week, uh, with both of us in Glasgow, we'll have a, a, a bunch more segments and yeah. uh, interviews and thoughts and all kinds of things about what the heck is going on in Scotland this, uh, this these two weeks. But let's turn over uh, to just a few other stories in our Week in Review. So on Wednesday this week, the day we're we're, we're speaking, uh, was Finance Day at COP, and there's a lot going on. We saw uh, uh, the uh, IFRS, the um, International Financial Reporting Standards Board, uh, launch a uh, or announce the establishment of a unified and globally consistent uh, corporate disclosure, mm-hmm. um, or at least a step in that direction. And mm-hmm. um, this was in partnership with GRI and, and the group formerly known as SASB and some <laughs> others. And, and, and one, one of our colleagues uh, pinged me on Wednesday morning and said, uh, is this a big deal?
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: my answer was, yeah, it's kind of just another brick in the wall. It's just another step in this long march that's Mm -hmm. uh, been going on for a couple years and been accelerating over the past year and will probably continue to do that That's to to create this set of standards, which will then, I'm sure, take a year or two or three years to, uh, to get implemented among companies. And that's in addition to whatever the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission will be mandating or, or guidelines or something TBD, uh, presumably in the coming weeks or month, a couple months. But you know, along those lines, we had the the piece in our uh, Greenfin Weekly uh, newsletter written. This one written by CJ Klaus, our senior writer. You know, sort of looking at. Um, and what's going on with finance, and uh, and instead sort of talking about uh, the fact that, in uh, particularly the finance, which is how do you finance the transition, particularly how do rich countries provide financing to the, the less developed countries? Uh, you know, a few years ago, the G seven: uh, Britain, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United States actually earlier this year they 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 reaffirmed their commitment that was made a few years ago uh 12 years ago actually yeah, uh, ago. to 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 jointly mobilize 100 billion dollars a year uh through to 2025 to help uh adaptation and mitigation for funding uh, funding to less wealthy countries that hasn't happened a fraction mm-hmm. of that has mm-hmm. happened i think it's 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 a small fraction actually so this is a really interesting area but that's that's one part of this story that that CJ wrote uh, she laid out um you know sort of uh talked about the finance, uh, the roadmap for private climate finance and uh, the top priority areas, and she laid some of that out. It's, it's This seems to be one of the big focuses of this COP is money, 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 yeah. money. Yeah, 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 How do we yeah. pay for stuff? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's one thing to talk about. It's one thing to commit to it. It's another thing to finance it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that um, has come up a few times here, I mean, is – what some of these terms mean so to go back to your um well let, actually well let's start with net, you know what does it mean to finance a net zero portfolio what does that mean exactly and no one really knows um every bank seems to have their own kind of slightly different take on it and to go back to your earlier comments about standards that feels like something that needs to happen in order for there to be more clarity around who's really making these commitments There uh, yeah, there was an interesting, um, presentation i went to earlier and it was it's not not at all about finance but it was kind of it was kind of about finance because um actually sarah minker the founder of grow intelligence was talking about just what it means for a company to be net zero in their supply chain what does it mean and she was talking about climate resilience and how how there needs to be something like the stress tests right like banks know what a stress test is they didn't used to know but then Someone came out with a framework and said, okay, this is what you have to do to make sure you're resilient. Well, now I, we kind of need the same thing for what it means to finance net zero, what it means to finance this tr- transition. That's kind of part of it, I think, is just yeah. sort of the different impressions we have. But yeah, I mean, the financing issue is huge here. Very, very yeah. huge. I don't know that that's different though than normal, is it?
1: Yeah. Um... No, this has been a story ever since, you know, climate became a thing and the yeah, the, and the, the, it, yeah. sort of the delta between rich countries and, and poor countries uh, has been uh, in terms of one of them uh, caused the problem and, and has money exactly. and the other is, yeah. you know, has to has to uh, deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you talk about, well, how do we finance net zero? One piece of that came out uh, last week. Where the uh, mm-hmm. science based targets initiative, this uh, global body that's uh, been setting uh, you know helping set uh, emissions reduction targets in line with science, issued the first ever net zero corporate standard and it's a it's to certify companies' net zero targets are they in line with the Paris agreement's goal mm-hmm. 1.5 degree warming you know uh, and uh, um, and they actually certified, the first seven firms: two U.S. firms, mm-hmm. CVS of all, uh, who, yeah. who knew that CVS was leader there, and then JLL, the big real estate firm, which mm-hmm. has long been a leader in this stuff, along with AstraZeneca, Dentsu International, another British firm, Wholesome, the Wholesome, big Swiss yeah. c- cement company, Orsted, the large Danish uh, wind and, and energy company, and 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 Ypro, which I believe is Indian, um, I think pro, a tech yeah. IT tech company. company. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so so we're getting there. Um, but I, I, what's fascinating, and this is why I think that, you know, the whole greenfin conversation just uh, just gets interesting and more and more interesting every quarter, really, if not every month. Um, it, it, there's so much in play right now and, and trillions of dollars at stake. So I encourage encourage you to read CJ's article um, about yeah. um, about what sort of was going on and, and as she calls it. Companies, investors, climate, and cop. But um, let's turn to a non-cop story that you wrote. I mean, it's all climate-related, so it's I guess it's all part of it. It has to do with small, and mid-sized businesses, SMBs, as mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. called, um, uh, being sort of taken under wing by Intuit, the uh, accounting uh, software company to help uh, SMBs take climate action. Uh, this is a really interesting story uh, because this is something that's been so much needed. But uh, you, you wrote this, Heather. Uh, talk about what's going on.
0: Yeah. So I just have to say, first of all, I was inspired by your story earlier this year um, where you, you focused on the need for this, right? We don't really have that many resources for small and mid-sized businesses, small, mid-sized enterprises, whatever you want to call them, SMB, SME. And Intuit is, um, you know, obviously everyone knows them as a tax software company, right? They have this this great financial software um, for people, but also, you know, for individuals, but their predominant focus is small businesses. And so as part of their own corporate sustainability, their own strategy, they are trying to help the small companies get a better grip on this? I mean, for, for a number of different reasons. First of all, obviously, it's in their interest to make sure that that small companies are healthy because <laughs> that's their customer base. But part of this is the, the recognition and the realization that these smaller organizations are part of bigger company supply chains. So we really, really need to start, you know, the, the scope three conversation comes up all the time and how do you get smaller suppliers to buy in? Well, many of them just don't have the resources. They don't have the, the frameworks. They don't have the, the tools um, and and the and the resources necessarily to do this. So that's the sort of thinking behind this. But but what they've specifically done is, is create a uh, marketplace. They went out and negotiated deals with like 12 different uh service providers. So, so there's a couple of, there's a renewable energy marketplace in there. There's um, carbon neutral shipping, refrigerant management. So the idea is like here, here smaller, you know, here entrepreneur, here small business, here are these resources. And Oh, by the way, because we're aggregating your interest, you're going to get a deal on this. Like you're going to get a better rate. Um, So there, you know, I just, I thought it was a fascinating arrangement um it's just obviously it's only in the u.s and the uk right now um but it's just a really smart on their part and also just wonderful i just agree sort of realization um and i and i don't know i'm going to keep blabbing on but but one of the other things that made me look at this more closely was that i talked to one of the carbon accounting um software companies last week um Persephone, and um, they got a massive funding round, $101 million series B round for a software company. That is huge. And it's the largest ever for like a climate tech software company, it's hands down. But one of the things they're doing with that money is they're going to offer a free version of their, basically their enterprise accounting software for carbon, for carbon and ESG metrics and so and that's the other thing is many many of these small businesses don't have any way of figuring out how to measure this stuff and so if we can get to a point where they they have more knowledge it's going to be good for them it's also going to be good for their larger customers right for the in the business to business sense um yeah so pretty cool pretty cool developments there. Yeah,
1: and Intuit pledged to help a million small businesses in the U.S. Yeah. cut their emissions in half by the end of the decade. Just to put that in perspective, because uh, I looked this up, there are actually 31.7 million small businesses in the United States, according to the uh, Small Business Administration. Mm-hmm. That was 2020 mm-hmm. data. Um, but 80% of those have no employees. So there's really 6 million um, ha- do have some paid employees, and they define small businesses as any Independent business having fewer than 500 employees, so that's a, still mm-hmm. uh, for some of us a pretty good sized business. Uh, so I think this is, but so one million out of six million, billion—that's a good chunk of 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 these companies, and particularly these bigger ones that you know are, as you said, have are part of supply chains and are being pressed uh, to do these things and don't have the dedicated headcount or even the money to invest in these things. So this is a great development.
0: Indeed. So should we go back to COP for our last story this week? I think we should because it was one of the big announcements already um, this week was the leaf coalition, right? So this, this organization was launched in April. The idea was to create a market for protecting tropical forests. And I, we know that, um, well, you know, you remember who was a UK, it was UK, Norway, and United States that, that came up with this, but they also launched with a lot of companies. So, Share the news on the LEAF Coalition and why this is a big deal.
1: So the LEAF Coalition, as you said, launched last spring, um, and the, the goal is to protect tropical forests by paying locals not to destroy them through logging or cattle raising or agriculture. Um, And this is, you know, arguably a forgotten part of the, you know, we talk about planting trees, but we do not talk about protecting the forests that exist, particularly the tropical rainforests uh, around, not just in in, in the Amazon area, but also in Central Africa and the Congo and then through Southeast Asia, from Myanmar to to Indonesia, there's these uh, tropical forests. And we talk about stopping illegal deforestation, but there's also a lot of uh, legal deforestation, uh, in other words, sanctioned by countries to, for economic development for uh, for ag or or timber mm-hmm. raising, or timber harvesting, or, or things yeah. like that. And so, exactly, yeah. we're talking about what if we could pay farmers and ranchers and landowners to take care of their land and provide the income that they would have had. And that's what the uh, LEAF coalition is doing. And so uh, it, it had been uh, going uh, well this this week. They announced that is a, a billion dollars uh, uh, have been committed by the countries, a number of different countries from Uganda to uh, Vietnam to Brazil, uh, saying that that uh, it, it's not a, a billion dollars committed. It's a billion dollars worth of um of projects that companies should be paying for. And so, this is a way that companies can meet their net zero goals and do it authentically, you know, because you can measure the avoided deforestation based on what the traditional deforestation rates had been in certain areas and the kinds of trees and all sorts of things that, that scientists can do these days. Um, and protecting these, these vital resources and Protecting the people who make their living there, and so uh, this week they announced uh, some some new companies that are joining. They announced some new countries that are that are being part of this, and announcing that you know the, the ambitions uh, behind this are really extraordinary. Um, I, I spoke uh, last week with Aaron Bloomgarten, who's really the brainchild behind all of this. Runs the set up the organization called Emergent that is uh, is is coordinating all of this a nonprofit organization. And um, he comes from, has 20 years in the area of finance and carbon offsets and carbon uh, management. And um, he's got amazing ambitions. They've they've got a billion dollars that of demand demand. you know, right about now, he wants to have it $10 billion by next COP. And $50 billion sometime, you know, soon. He wouldn't say exactly when, but, you know, maybe the end of the decade. That's a lot of money that's being dedicated to that. So I'm, I'm, I am I'm, think this is a one of those things uh, that um, companies need to be paying attention to. Uh, he's got uh, 20-some companies, Amazon, Bayer, Delta, Airline, Nestle, Salesforce, Unilever, some of the usual suspects, to be sure but one last thing and then I'll I'll, I'll shut up here is that Aaron uh, his goal here is not just to keep it big businesses that you can bring in small businesses to your earlier point let them aggregate some piece of this you know by and and offsetting some of their impacts as they are required to do by their as they are part of of supply chains by larger companies So this this doesn't just have to be the big emitters in the hard-to-abate sectors like airlines and chemical companies. This has a lot of potential.
0: As promised, I'm back with a second batch of keynote highlights from the Verge 21 conference in late October. We had a very rich array of keynote speakers, and I've got quite a few to feature, so let's get right down to it. First up, we have Renee Lertzman, founder of the Project Inside Out. She addresses the hope-despair binary um, that's often associated with the sustainability profession and why leaders should let themselves be human as they
3: develop their strategies. Do you judge yourself for being too down, negative? Do you find yourself wishing you could be more positive and upbeat? Do you find yourself getting whiplash on the hope and despair binary. Well, it's time to blow that binary up altogether and replace it with something altogether more authentic and grounded and emotionally intelligent when it comes to leadership, when it comes to change. And it starts with our own experience, our abilities to, as the Sufi poet Rumi says, welcome all of the guests into the guest house, whether it's sadness, despair, hope, anxiety, inspiration. It turns out that doing that is a much more effective way of leading than turning into the hope police. We've been holding on for so long to outdated beliefs about how we approach change, that it's up to us to keep people and ourselves feeling upbeat, hopeful all the time, or that we have to bring others along to join the movement. As it turns out, that flies in the face of everything we know about resilience and the conditions for deep, lasting, transformative change. What if it's not up to us to keep ourselves and others hopeful and bought in, but rather more about how we hold space for ourselves and each other, and giving us permission to be human. Next up, Michael Bakker, Vice President of Global Workplace Programs
0: at Google, spoke with Ray about some of her work and how it's influenced his own strategy. And here he addresses the importance of balancing being bold about the long-term, but but remembering to act in the here and now.
4: I try to deal with it on a daily basis, and it starts, for me with, I'm a system thinker. So I like to drive change in a system and have a very systematic approach to the work that I do. So I really start with what are ultimately our North Stars? What is it we want to achieve? And for me, the bolder, the better.
3: Mm-hmm. Because
4: I think by being bold, you really raise the expectations. And I really believe that people in general can do so much more than they think they can if you just... Ask them, what can you do? Mm -hmm. So to me, it's really about being bold and to think long-term. And I think in our organization, that is really about moonshot thinking as well.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: But then I go back to being grounded in reality and the here and now. And if you think about the organization I lead, it is about services delivery today. It is not about thinking about what we're going to in 2030. So it is about combining the here and now with the boldness of where you want to be in 2030. And then you you can ask these questions. Let me give you an example. So as an organization, we've committed to only use carbon-free energy 24-7 by 2030. And because my organization is responsible for the built environment and for the way we operate our buildings, that has now come to the sustainability team and to say, how do you go from where we are today in an operation, in a world where so much of our energy is not clean 24-7, How do you go from here to the promised land in 2030? And what I've learned is that by just being very methodical, you can ultimately bring your organizations to that mindset as well. And at the same time, the organization really brings to me this passion for and this sense of urgency from we need to do it faster and we probably need to do significantly more. So I found that ultimately by being so different You become ultimately so much better together.
0: Uh We were fortunate enough to have Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg join us on the keynote stage, and he addresses here how the Department of Transportation is thinking about the spaces that people need to navigate, whether it's urban or rural, and how that is affecting the United States infrastructure strategy.
5: So what I wanted to do was talk through this with a bit of a design mentality as we think about the spaces that people navigate and What the climate implications of it are. First, we're thinking about the way people navigate the spaces around them when they drive and the spaces, literal or figurative, that might stand between people and the nearest piece of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. For those who live in cities, which is often where uh, you have the most services, it can be the most difficult place to be sure that people have access to charging because it is so dense that the chargers might not be there in an apartment building or workplace. In a rural area, it might actually be the case that people have electric charging infrastructure in their home. It's as simple as the plug in the wall of any home that stands alone or has a garage. But they may have challenges having enough charging stations along the routes that they routinely drive in spread out areas. So, the infrastructure legislation contemplates what it's going to take and provides the resources to build a network of EV chargers across the country, including in underserved parts of cities, and in rural areas. Now, it's not enough to get people into zero emission cars. We also need to make it easier and safer to get around without needing a car and without any of the pollution or challenges that come with uh, needing to use a car to get from point A to point B. Or as I often think about it, we need to give people options so that you don't necessarily have to take two tons of metal with you to get everywhere that you go. This is a matter of closing the effective distance, whatever the physical distance is, between where somebody lives and where they need to be, bringing shops and jobs closer, whether it's through planning or whether it's through reducing travel times on transit or making it easier and safer to take a bike or scooter or walk.
0: Next up is Davishi Jha, Director of Partnerships of Zero Hour and the founder of Voyagers, an organization of Gen Zers that collaborates with corporations to help them on their sustainability strategies. Here she speaks about the importance of including the perspective of
6: young people, including Gen Z, in corporate climate strategy. It's very important for young people to be involved, but echoing what Amy said, again, it's important to include all All of Gen Z, I guess, is the best way to say that. So that means making sure you include Gen Z members, just young people that are that are part of frontline communities and are directly witnessing the effects of climate change. It's incredibly important to look at all aspects of young people in general, too, because that's also a word that's used a lot and can get kind of siloed into a specific view. I, I also want to just echo the importance of urgency. It's it's incredible how, you know, it's not it's too late if Gen Z is 30 and, and have, you know, they're you're kind of getting into the workforce. That's already too late when we consider mm-hmm. climate change. So it's important to get in early and, and have accessibility and resources for young people to be involved in the space.
0: Respected. Environmentalist and strategist Paul Hawken joined us. He's the founder of Project Drawdown and Project Regeneration. He spoke with GreenBiz co founder Joel McHower about his new book, Regeneration Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. In this clip, he explains why he's embracing the word regeneration.
2: Regeneration, I define it as putting life at the center of every act and decision. And the reason I think it's a good word for us is because. It's a word that's innate to being a human being. It's not external and added like jargon or a phrase or some new a neologism. It's actually what we do every day. All 30 trillion cells in our body are regenerating every nanosecond or we wouldn't be having this conversation. So it's innate to being us, but we take care of ourselves, the, the, our children, the, the people we love, you know, are, we, we, we're doing this every single day. It's, it's, it, like I say, it's innate to being a human being. It's innate to life itself. It's what life does. It's the default mode of life. So to me, regeneration is not about sort of saying this is a better word so much, is opening and expanding the sense of possibility, enlarging what it means for human beings and companies and NGOs and to come together, basically, and solve the climate crisis.
1: Sustainability, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, you and I used the word for years because it was parlance of the time, but, you know, you couldn't really define it. It was like Zeno's paradox. Well, what is that magic point when you achieve it? And then what? Whereas regeneration is something that happens all the time and is something we should do as a culture, as a civilization, forever, not just now.
0: Amy DeFore, principal of Prime Impact Fund, which provides catalytic funding to early stage startups, speaks about why it's important to have an intersectional approach to climate tech.
7: Yeah. So climate change is an intersectional issue. I mean, intersectional, interconnected, and multifaceted. Mm -hmm. Most of the people that are disproportionately impacted by the devastating effects of climate change are low-income communities and communities of color. And so while our mandate is investing in companies that have large-scale greenhouse gas emissions reductions, we've also been thinking about unintended negative social and environmental consequences. And so When I talk about an intersectional approach, it's really asking founders and investors to not only think about greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but climate justice and also what's making a good business. I think a good example of that in our portfolio is a company called Clean Crop Technologies. So they're developing cold plasma technology that can degrade pathogens, toxins, and pests responsible for food waste. Hmm. their initial market is in peanuts and aflatoxin is a huge issue. It can destroy up to 50% of the peanut crop in lots of countries and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. It's not only I'm um, responsible for that, but in food insecure populations, people don't have any other option, but to eat this contaminated food, which has been linked to the poisoning of expectant mothers and young children. And so when I say intersectional, I mean, Clean Crop not only focuses on a developing and developed country solution, but also a greenhouse gas emissions impact, but also human health. And rounding out our highlights from the Verge 21 main
0: stage is Shia Bastida, climate activist with Fridays for the Future. Here, she addresses the critical importance of including indigenous wisdom in the dialogue around holistic solutions.
8: And I told them that the crucial thing in climate solutions was bringing indigenous philosophy in because every single part of the world is different and the people who know the land best are people who have been living there for thousands of years. I brought up this story of my hometown where a university had come in and said, I want to build my university here. The indigenous people of the area said, you can't because this land is unstable. The university went ahead and built the the building and now it's an unfinished building because it's half sunk. And this type of experiences have shown me that we are not really listening. We're not really making spaces diverse. We're not really having that diversity of thought that is so necessary for us to actually cross the page on on how to address the climate crisis in an intersectional and holistic way. So if you take anything away from this, is that we need to adopt a framework of climate sensibility, which means that we need to accept everything all the emotions, all of the facts about the climate crisis and actually have the courage to act upon them. Politicians need to recognize that I, as a 19-year-old, I'm fighting for my future every time that I do a speech, every time that I organize a strike. And we need to realize that the frameworks that we've had up until now have not been working because they are based on competition and individualism. And we need to shift to a way of cooperation and holistic solutions. Thank you.
1: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization stories and events we've mentioned. And while you're on the site, please check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them, and it's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to learn more about them. We love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week, both of us from Glasgow, Scotland, with another edition of Green Biz 350 and more about COP26, until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
0: And this episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.